Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at seven, yes, seven chapters in the book of Job, and this teaching is entitled The Irreligiosity of Job. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you know that the story of Job is about a rich, prosperous man who is deeply devoted to God, who in just a matter of moments loses everything in chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 19. Not only does he lose all of his material wealth, but Job also has to do the unthinkable and bury all 10 of his suddenly dead children. But despite that massive amount of pain, Job continues to worship God. That is, until Job all of a sudden falls desperately ill. He is lying on his deathbed, writhing in pain, muttering between breaths that he still worships God, when three of his friends show up. And his three friends sit with him in silence for seven days, and then in Job chapter 3, Job begins to speak. But when Job begins to speak this time, everything about the book of Job has changed. And we've gone from reading the book of Job in prose to reading in verse. And for chapters 3 through 41, the entire book of Job is written in poetry. It then switches back to prose for the very last chapter, chapter 42. But the overwhelming majority of the book of Job is poetry. So last week we looked at the first section of this poetry, which is chapters 3 to 14. In these chapters, we talked about how Job doesn't really offer answers in our suffering, but instead offers companionship. He understands what it feels like when we are betrayed by God. And so today we're going to look at the second section of this four-part poem, by looking at chapters 15 to 21. Now, this poem revolves around Job conversing with his three close friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And when we consider what Job is, Job represents innocent suffering. And these three friends in this poem represent religion. And what's stunning is that when you read this poem, you realize that these friends are the villain of the story which means that religion is the villain in this poetry. Now, religion continually repeats to Job that he is suffering because he somehow sinned, so Job needs to repent toward God. But Job is adamant that he is innocent. And rather than blessing the name of God as Job did in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Job is quite angry with God. Job is giving up on his faith. And it's here that we begin to read about the second part of this conversation, written in poetic form, which unfolds in chapter 15, when Eliphaz begins to speak to Job. He says to Job, you are undermining religion and crippling faith in God. Sin has seduced your mind. Your tongue flaps with deceit. Your mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Will you scorn religion's comforts and reject our indulgent advice? The wicked man's life is a torment. His days are anguish and pain. In his ear is the voice of terror. 
in his mouth the taste of death. For the wicked man shook his fist at God and dared to revolt against God, charging at God headlong behind the spikes of his shield. For the fate of the wicked is barren, and his hopes are consumed by fire. His womb is heavy with suffering. He gives birth to sorrow and pain. So here's Eliphaz speaking to Job, and you have to remember that Eliphaz represents religion. And what Eliphaz is telling Job is that he is threatening the very premise of the foundation of religion. Because what Eliphaz tells Job is that religion promises that the religious will be rewarded. So the only reason that Job is suffering is because he has not been religious enough. Now, this idea about religion promising that the religious will be rewarded still is with us today. And if you don't believe me, all I have to say to you is just go watch one Christian movie. And when you watch this Christian movie, the same thing will happen because I've seen a lot of Christian movies. The main character will be going through a rough time. His football team will be losing. His marriage will be falling apart. He'll be addicted to the bottle and his dog will die. And then about two thirds of the way through the movie, this same character will give his life to God. Start going to church. Start reading the Bible. And all of a sudden, his marriage improves, his football team starts winning, he's no longer interested in drinking, and he gets a new dog. Yeah, the whole idea behind these Christian movies is that they are trying to tell you the promise that the religious will be rewarded. So if something's going wrong in your life, turn away from sin and wrongdoing and recommit to religion, and you will be rewarded. Now, Job hears all that Eliphaz is saying to him. And Job, in the midst of some just unfathomable suffering, writhing in pain on the ground, having just buried his children, tells Eliphaz these words in chapter 16. Enough. I've heard enough. I am sick of your consolations. How long will you pelt me with insults? Will your malice never relent? I too could say such things if you were in my position. I could bury you with accusations and sneer at you in my piety. But I speak and my pain keeps raging. I am silent and have no relief. For disaster has worn me out and suffering has made me wither. In God's rage, God hunted and caught me. God cracked my bones in God's teeth. I was whole, God ripped me apart, chewed my body to pulp. And where now is my hope? My piety, who will see it? It will follow me to the grave and lie in the dust beside me. So Job tells Eliphaz, I have been religious and all I have found is suffering. In other words, for Job, Religion has not kept its promises. So you have to understand that Job is calling religion out. He is taking it to task and saying, you promised that I would be taken care of by God if I was devoted to God. Well, I did my part and God has not taken care of me. Now, this causes religion to freak out. 
And to give you an idea of how much religion freaks out, Job's second friend, Bildad, begins speaking in rebuttal to Job in chapter 18. He says quite boldly, How long, Job, will you lay these word snares? Be sensible, then we will talk. Why do you treat us like morons and act as if we were cows? Should the earth be changed for your sake and mountains move at your bidding? It is true. The sinner is snuffed out. His candle flickers and dies. All the sinner's roots are withered. All his branches are bare. He disappears from the earth and not a trace is left behind him. This is what happens to the godless. This is the sinner's doom. And so Bildad doubles down on this idea that if you are suffering, it's because you have sinned. In other words, everyone that has pain deserves that pain. Otherwise, God would not allow that person to have pain. And through his threatened tone, Bildad reveals that all of religion is threatened if there is no punishment reward system for being devoted to religion. This is still with us to this day. To give you an idea of how it's with us to this day, I would turn you to the story of a man named Bishop Carlton Pearson, who ran a church called Higher Dimensions Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, all the way back in 2001, 2002, to 2006. Now, Bishop Pearson was an up-and-coming preacher who was quite dynamic as a speaker. His church began growing to large, eye-popping numbers, and he quickly had one of the largest churches in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But something started to change around 2002. Bishop Pearson remembers that he started building his relationship with God, and he became convinced that God, who is all-loving, would not allow a place like hell to exist. In Bishop Pearson's words, he said, I believe that people go through hell, but not to hell. And Bishop Pearson began pointing to Psalm 136, verse 1, where the psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And after reading that verse, Bishop Pearson would turn to his congregation and ask the question, How can mercy endure forever and hell endure forever? One would cancel the other out, right? And so Bishop Pearson started calling into question religion's whole premise of a punishment reward system in a very similar vein to what Job was doing 25 to 2700 years ago. And how do you think people responded when they heard Bishop Pearson telling people the good news that he didn't believe hell exists? Well, you would assume that people would say, Oh, man, what a relief. Eternal punishment isn't a possibility. Thank God for that. But that's not how people responded. Instead, they started leaving his church in droves. So much so that four years after preaching this message that hell most likely cannot exist, Higher Dimensions Church had to close its doors on New Year's Eve of 2005. A few months later, Christianity Today wrote about the closure of Higher Dimensions Church. Their words are, Higher Dimensions slide began about four years ago when Pearson began preaching a form of universalism that alienated his Pentecostal evangelical followers. 
his gospel of inclusion, that Christ died for the sins of the world and therefore the whole world will be saved, denied the classic Christian belief that salvation involves turning from sin and accepting God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus. So what Pearson and what Job reveal is that whenever you challenge the punishment reward system, religion will push back on that and double down and say, no, we have to have this punishment reward system. But Job would be quick to say, it doesn't work that way. So a question that all of us have to ask when we're reading this section of the poem is we have to ask ourselves, is our faith threatened if people don't go to hell? Another way to ask the question is, is our faith threatened if everyone goes to heaven? What if there is no heaven? Is our faith still threatened? And I believe that if our faith is threatened because of any of those things are removed or given or taken away, it reveals how much we trust and believe in a punishment reward system for our faith. Now, you may say to me, Craig, I need to hold on to that. And I would say, totally fine. I just want you to understand that that's what Job is challenging here in the scriptures so long ago. If Job was with us here today and you said, I believe in a heaven and a hell and the righteous, the believers, the devoted to religion will go to heaven and the godless will go to hell, Job would disagree with you. And that's okay. There are several people in the Bible whose theology I disagree with, right? And I tend to agree more with Job, but if you disagree with him, that's fine as long as you know what you're disagreeing about. Job disagrees with Bildad so much that he says in chapter 19 to Bildad, do you think I have lost my mind? Am I the one who is raving? Are you sure that you have convicted me and justified my disgrace? When the plague brings sudden death, God laughs at the anguish of the innocent. If only my cry were recorded and my plea inscribed on a tablet, carved with an iron stylus, chiseled in rock forever, someday my witness would come. My avenger would read those words. My avenger would plead for me in God's court. He would stand up and vindicate my name. So what Job says to Bildad is rather stunning. Because he says, I wish there was a third party judge who could decide who is more just between me and God. Because I am convinced that this third party judge would look at my life and come away with the verdict that I was more innocent than God. In other words, what Job is saying is that God is unjust. God is unjust because the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And there is no punishment reward system. Now, this is a pretty big claim. Uh, if Job said this in front of many churches, he would probably get run out of that many churches, right? So we have to ask the question, what evidence does Job have to justify such a grand accusation that God is an unjust God. Well, when you look at what Job is using to describe why he believes God to be unjust, he is consistently pointing to the suffering that he is enduring. 
He has had to bury his children. He lost all of his wealth in a matter of moments. He is in pain and agony and writhing on the ground. In other words, the way that Job justifies this claim that God is unjust is he cites his own experience as the reason for believing this. So Job is raised his whole life with this understanding that if he is devoted to religion, then God will take care of him. Job then lives out his life with that principle, devoted to religion, and for the majority of his life it works until it doesn't. And all of a sudden he has his friends telling him, trust us, Job, this is the way religion works. But Job's life has gone somewhere else and he's thinking to himself, I'm not so sure it does go that way. The story of Job, the poetry of Job, asks us to consider the question, what happens when your experience contradicts your tradition? What happens when you have a full set of beliefs and you believe those beliefs with everything you can believe and then something happens and it challenges the foundation of those beliefs? I encountered something similar to this last summer when I took a trip to Disney World with my family. Now, there was one day when we went to the Magic Kingdom that we were watching this spectacular fireworks show over the Magic Castle, and I mean spectacular. Disney has the intellectual property to just generate all sorts of memories inside people, and we watched as they lit up the castle with environmental projection and played scenes and songs from Moana, and Toy Story, and all sorts of other Disney hits. About 15 minutes into the show, with giant fireworks exploding and illuminating the crowds around us, they then went toward the grand finale and introduced Elsa as she began to sing Let It Go. Now, Let It Go is one of my daughter's favorite songs, but it was not the favorite song of the couple who was standing next to me. Now, this couple was in their early 20s, and as soon as Let It Go began to play, they looked at each other, and they announced to everyone around them, including myself, goodbye, everyone, we don't do Frozen. And they walked out of the park. What is that? <laughs> well, it seems from just the few words I interacted with them, that they had this sense that they were old school Disney fans. And Disney and its heyday in their mind was all about generating good content and good stories. And Disney would never sell out. Until that is, Disney created Frozen. And for whatever reason, this couple felt that Frozen was a cash grab, was the over-commercialization of the Disney Corporation. And for that reason, they left in protest to tell whoever would listen that they were still committed to old school Disney and this new direction was something they could not get on board with. Now, I have to laugh because Disney has always been about making money. And I will tell you, as a parent, they are really good at making money, right? <laughs> but this couple felt like the experience of Frozen contradicted the tradition of what they understood Disney to be. So on a much grander scale, Job asks us to examine our beliefs and asks us to answer the question, what happens when our tradition contradicts our experience? 
Now, Job answers the question for him and what he does. Because when Job's tradition contradicts his experience, Job discards his tradition and trusts his experience. In other words, he believes his experience is more important than tradition, which is why he begins telling his friends that God is ultimately an unjust God. And if this conclusion makes you uncomfortable, I will tell you, yeah, it does. How is it that Job can just all of a sudden say, my tradition has gotten it wrong. My experience tells me that the tradition needs to go. Well, when we look at Job's story, we have to remember that Job's story is about transformation. This is not a story where Job practices religion, is devoted, then tested by the suffering, but sticks with it and returns to what he knew before. That's a story of confirmation, and that simply doesn't exist in the book of Job. Instead, Job's story is about transformation. And Job begins by practicing religion. He does everything he needs to be to devote himself to the religion. But then suffering happens and it changes him. Now, traditionally, there are three paths to spiritual transformation. Those three paths are tradition, scripture, and experience. Now, classically, people have viewed these three paths to spiritual transformation as a three-legged stool. You need all three of these things to hold up the stool to keep each other in check. So if you remove tradition and you just have scripture and experience, well, the stool will collapse. If you just have experience, you're going to topple over. If you just have tradition and experience but no scripture, well, the stool will topple over as well. But if you have all three, then you can proceed into transformation with confidence. Now, this metaphor was recently challenged by an ordained Episcopalian minister known as Reverend Carolyn Metzler. Now, she lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico to this day, and she looked at the metaphor of the stool and she said, "Uh, this is problematic because in this metaphor, all three of these paths are of equal value. But I haven't found that to be the case. So she said a much better metaphor is the metaphor of a tricycle, where the two tiny wheels in back are scripture and tradition, but the big wheel in front attached to the pedals is the wheel of experience. So with the tricycle metaphor, experience guides and moves tradition and scripture, but tradition and scripture balance experience. Now, when you look at this tricycle metaphor, Protestants have overemphasized the scripture wheel. Catholics have overemphasized the tradition wheel. But the fact is we need to overemphasize the experience wheel because that is how people primarily experience God in their own lives. The tricycle metaphor allows for a primacy of experience that enables people to trust their own lives and what they know to be true when they pursue God for themselves. Now, personally, I have to tell you that this has been life-changing to me because I think about all of the times in my life where I've encountered my experience running up against my tradition and scripture, and I've been told by religion to trust tradition and scripture more, and I know that it's wrong. 
To give you an example of this, I'd like to talk about same-sex marriage. Now, you may have heard my story before and how I was told over and over again by my tradition that if I went and studied the Bible, I would come away convinced that same-sex marriage was wrong. So I went and studied the Bible and did some pretty deep studies on all of the passages about same-sex sexual activity. And I came away convinced that the Bible does not condemn same-sex marriage in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> now, the tradition told me I needed to go back and study more because I came to the wrong conclusion. But that's a story for another time. Because the fact is, while I could talk about what the Bible says or doesn't say about same-sex relationships, the thing that changed my mind the most about same-sex marriage was knowing people who were in a same-sex marriage and seeing how healthy their marriage was. Even healthier than some straight couples I knew, right? And the more I began to talk to people and hear their experience and hear from queer people and the way that they've been treated by the church, I started to realize the church has not been Christian toward queer people. This has to change. And when we reduce homosexuality to an ivory tower debate, it becomes ugly and awful and horrendous real quick, right? But when we celebrate and affirm the queer experience, all of a sudden we realize the frightening homophobia that plagues the church. And it becomes quite obvious that the church must change. So Job dares us to ask the question, what happens when our tradition contradicts our experience? And whether you agree with Job or not, what we all need to acknowledge is that Job discards his tradition and trusts his experience. Now, when religion hears about Job discarding his tradition and trusting his experience, religion, once again, freaks out. Religion will respond by saying, no, Job, no. And that is embodied in the last part of the second section of this poem in the book of Job by his friend Zophar when he says these words in chapter 20 to Job. Zophar says, my mind is seething with anger. My rage drives me to speak. I have heard enough of your insults. You answer our wisdom with lies. Haven't you realized yet, how can you be so blind, that the sinner's joy is brief and lasts no more than a moment? Though the sinner rises as high as heaven and his forehead touches the clouds, he will drop to the ground like dung and rot like fallen fruit. At the height of the sinner's fortune, he falls. Every disaster strikes him. The wrath of God assaults him. Calamities rain on his head. Total darkness engulfs the sinner. Fire from heaven consumes him. Storms demolish his fields. Floods sweep away his house. Heaven reveals the sinner's guilt. And earth rises against him. This is the fate of the sinner. This is the rebel's reward. So Zophar, representing religion, tells Job, you see all those people who are wicked that look happy that you're telling me are happy? Well, they're not actually happy. And this is important for us to acknowledge because religion insists 
over and over again that the non-religious who appear to be happy are not actually happy. Understand what is happening here. This is ultimately a distrust of your experience. When you meet people outside of your faith tradition and you, they tell you that they are happy, religion says, hmm, they're not really happy. Don't really believe them. So this causes Job to retaliate. He says to Zophar in chapter 21, is my grievance against a man? Why shouldn't I be impatient? Look at me, be appalled, clap your hands to your mouths. Why do the wicked prosper and live to a ripe old age? Their children stand before them. Their grandchildren sit on their laps. Their grandchildren run out to play, skipping about like lambs, singing to drum and lyre, dancing to the sound of the flute. They end their lives in prosperity and go to the grave in peace. Yet they tell God, leave us alone. We can't be bothered about you. Why should we pray to God? What good will it do us to serve God? One man dies serenely, lapped in safety and comfort. Another dies in despair, his life bitter on his tongue. But both men rot in the ground, and maggots chew on them both. The wicked man is tucked into the earth, and flowers bloom on his grave. How hollow then, Zophar, is your comfort. Your answers are empty lies. Remember those words because when you realize that religion is asking you to distrust your experience, we have to ask what happens when religion does this. Job says that religion's answers are empty lies. Their comfort is hollow. In other words, religion cannot practice compassion. And any time a religion cannot practice compassion, it is an unhealthy religion. So when we take Job seriously, what Job reveals here in the second part of this poem is that the difference between unhealthy religion and healthy religion is that healthy religion will always lead one to trust their experience more than their tradition. Healthy religion doesn't ask you to double down on tradition, double down on scripture. Instead, healthy religion encourages you and helps you to see a God who is much bigger than religion. This past week in the news, there was a lot of talk about church in America and whether it was essential to our society. And there are a lot of pastors who have gone on TV. There are people who have signed papers, all of this stuff that says that church is essential and that people need to get together so they can pray. And when I think about the church that we are all part of, paradox, I think of so many happy and wonderful memories, and I just cannot wait to worship together with you guys again someday, right? But when I hear all of these other pastors talking about church being essential, I kind of have to laugh. Because the truth is, if paradox does its job really well, then we'll all know that church is not essential, right? <laughs> sure, church is good. Church is fun. We all enjoy being part of church. I personally find value in church. 
but it's not essential. And if we've done our job really well, then you'll see that it's not essential either because it's not like you come to church to meet God. Our job is to help you to go out into your life so that you can meet God out there. And I think one of the healthiest questions you can ask about your church, your mosque, your synagogue, whatever religious body you belong to, right, is that you can ask the question, how does my church help me to experience God when I am not at church? Our job at Paradox is not to convince you that God is in this building. Our job at Paradox is to convince you that God is with you at your job. God is with you here in the community of Redlands or wherever it is that you live. God is with you when you sit down at your dining table and you have a good meal with people you care about. How does your church help you to experience God when you are not at church? How does your church lead you to trust your own experience? How does your church help you to pray on your own? And yes, there is a lot of value for me in church, and I love church just as much as the next guy. But let me tell you, church is not essential. And the minute that we try to convince ourselves that we are an essential service, that this church is an essential service, is the minute that we have missed it. Because at that point, we're asking people to trust their tradition more than their experience. My hope and my prayer is that when you attend Paradox Church, is that we can help you to trust your experience. Our hope is that we can help you encounter God in every relationship in your life, not just in the Christian ones. Our hope and our prayer is that you may see every meal as a holy meal as something sacred to share with others. And our hope and prayer is that you may trust the experience you have in your local community and smile as you walk down the same street for the 1,000th time and think to yourself, surely God is in this place. My brothers and sisters, my siblings, our mission statement here at Paradox is that we exist to help you See and embrace Jesus Christ in all, in everything that you experience. And if you ever run into the conundrum where your tradition contradicts your experience, my prayer for you is that you may boldly trust your experience by following in the footsteps of Job and discard your tradition. That is the wisdom of this ancient book that was written 2,500 years ago and still speaks volumes to us today. My brothers, my sisters, my siblings, may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all that we experience. Amen.